Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I am Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. Lucy is a clinical assistant professor of medicine at the Stanford School of Medicine and the widow of the late Dr. Paul Kalanithi, author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, When Breath Becomes Air, for which she wrote the epilogue. She completed her medical degree at Yale, residency at the University of California, San Francisco, and a postdoctoral fellowship in healthcare delivery innovation at Stanford's Clinical Excellence Research Center. Her late husband, Paul Kalanithi, was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer at age 36, while a chief neurosurgical resident at Stanford. In the 22 months between Paul's cancer diagnosis and his death last year, Lucy and Paul continued to work as physicians and decided to have a baby daughter, and Paul wrote When Breath Becomes Air, which was published posthumously. At the cross-section of her medical career and her personal experience standing alongside her husband during his illness, she has special interests in healthcare value, meaning in medicine, patient-centered care, and end-of-life care. She's been interviewed by PBS NewsHour, Charlie Rose, NPR's Morning Edition, Yahoo News with Katie Couric, and the New York Times. And she lives in the Bay Area, where I do, with her daughter Katie. We're here to talk about her experiences with Paul, the beautiful book, her life since his death, and we're also going to be sharing information about a really exciting project she and I have both become involved with at OpenIDEO, a global design company whose purpose is to create positive impact on social issues through concepts of design. She's on the advisory board of their latest challenge, seeking to answer the question, how might we reimagine the end-of-life experience for ourselves and our loved ones? It's currently in the ideas phase. It's had an inspiration phase for a month, and then in July, it goes into a refinement uh, phase, and you can, anyone in the uh, entire world can become a part of that by going to idea dot two slash end of life. Welcome, Lucy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And I'm just going to clarify that website. It's ideo dot to. So I'm uh, sorry, ideo dot to slash end of life. Thanks. I, that's a typo on my part. I know for sure that it's IDEO, and I typed it wrong. <laughs> I was like, I'm really excited. I'm oh, no. <laughs> yes, IDEO. <laughs> um, amazing project, but let's, let's talk first about how you, how you came to it, uh, which will involve for my guests who don't know about, about the book and, and haven't heard uh, you know, haven't heard your story. Maybe we could stop with, start with you just talking a little bit about Paul and you and uh, your experience of his illness and, and death. Sure. Um, and thank you so much for having me on this show. It's really meaningful to get to talk with you. So I really appreciate it. I um, uh, So my husband died 
15 months ago tomorrow. Uh, his name mm-hmm. was Paul Kalanithi, and he was diagnosed three years ago with stage four lung cancer when he was 36, and he was just finishing his neurosurgical training at Stanford. So he was right on the brink of um, being a full-fledged neurosurgeon. And we had met um, in 2003 when we were in our first year of medical school together at Yale. And I was initially drawn to him because he was really thoughtful and really funny and really a lover of literature. He totally surprised himself by going into medicine. He always thought he would be a writer. Mm. And then, you know, was really interested in literature as a way of understanding, you know, what is it that makes us human and um, what connects us, what brings our lives meaning, even though we will all die and we're all mortal. And we sort of have to make sense of that. And then he found his way into medicine and ultimately neuroscience to continue to ask those questions about what does it mean to be human and became a neurosurgeon. And um, so we were both... um, uh, in our mid-30s, living in California, and then he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And it was sort of, um, you know, we knew immediately both being doctors, and we had we had gotten the news by looking at his CAT scan together, standing side by side and looking at the, you know, the planes of his organs clearly riddled with cancer, and both of us knowing immediately that that was a terminal illness and that he likely only had a few years um, left, which turned out to be true. And so the question was, how do we make... Um, how do we make that remaining time um, meaningful? And, and it ended up including um, deciding to have a child and Paul writing uh, the manuscript for When Breath Becomes Air, which, um, you know, he was still working on when he died last year and, and was published this year. And um, it's just been an amazing, you know, it's been a totally wrapped, the book has been totally wrapped up in my own experience of grief. Um, mm. Well, one thing, of course, that that uh, I, I honestly have been so captivated by by you in all of this because, of course, my own story uh, is losing a partner with whom I had a child after diagnosis. You know, mm-hmm. there's so many resonances <laughs> with my own uh, experience, and you and he both spoke about it so eloquently that I was right back there, uh, which I thank you for because, as you know, and maybe other people don't quite know, there's something so precious about those those experiences, those memories now, but originally experiences with that person you love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, just to give people a sense of the book, whether you might share the the actual diagnosis part of it. You know, I I work in cancer. I do cancer support groups, and everybody who's ever been diagnosed with cancer has that uh, you have cancer moment. Except you two didn't quite. You you looked at it yourselves, and he said, "I have cancer," which is a remarkably different experience, while being also the same. Um, and it 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 really is very uh, powerful the way that he wrote about that. Can you share that? Sure. Um, so I'll just read the the very beginning of the prologue of When Breath Becomes Air. Paul writes, "I flipped through the CT scan images. The diagnosis obvious." The lungs were matted with innumerable tumors, the spine deformed, a full lobe of the liver obliterated, cancer widely disseminated. I was a neurosurgical resident entering my final year of training. Over the last six years, I'd examined scores of such scans on the off chance that some procedure might benefit the patient. But this scan was different. It was my own 
I wasn't in the radiology suite wearing my scrubs and white coat. I was dressed in a patient's gown, tethered to an IV pole, using the computer the nurse had left in my hospital room with my wife, Lucy, an internist, at my side. I went through each sequence again, the lung window, the bone window, the liver window, scrolling from top to bottom, then left to right, then front to back, just as I had been trained to do, as if I might find something that would change the diagnosis. We lay together on the hospital bed, Lucy quietly, as if reading from a script, do you think there's any possibility that it's something else? No, I said. I know that a little bit before that was um, a kind of edgy time in your relationship, I guess I'd say, which which I um, somehow connected to how Paul must have been physically feeling, but not really understanding what was going on. And that's a lot of stress to not know where it's coming from, but to be that tired as I think he was. Do you connect those two? Oh, um, yeah, sure. I th- yeah, thanks for the euph- euphemism, edgy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. It, um, in the few months before his diagnosis, we were going through a really rocky patch in our marriage and sort of missing each other's attempts to communicate and reach out. Um, and, you know, we were both feeling lonely in our marriage. It's a really painful feeling. And um, the it was basically you know, due to the really intense demands of our careers. And, you know, he was working upwards of 100 hours a week. um, And I was in a busy fellowship. And then you're right, he wasn't feeling well, he was losing weight, and it was inexplicable. And he was starting to have like really severe backaches. And at the same time, he was a young, um, you know, neurosurgery resident who was healthy and who was working really hard, like on his feet 14 hours a day, doing brain surgery, skipping lunch. And so initially it seemed... Um, the symptoms seemed explicable, you know, like um, the the product of just such an intense, burdensome schedule. And then it started to become severe enough that both of us became worried about it. And um, uh, it, it was sort of this crucible of all these different things happening. And then um, right before his diagnosis, actually, um, probably two weeks before all of this, all of that, um, you know, mess of our relationship kind of came out on the table and we were um, able to communicate all of that and then start drawing together. You know, we had, we were starting to enter into couples therapy and we were feeling really hopeful about our ability to reconnect. And then that moment of his diagnosis that you're describing, um, happened right then. And it was very immediately obvious, you know, we love each other. We've always loved each other. This is going to be the challenge of our marriage. It's not this other stuff. It's going to be coping together through this serious illness. And, you know, as soon as he was diagnosed, I knew, that I would be holding him when he died. And that happened two years later. And I think, you know, I would give anything for that marriage not to have ended, you know, and it's Mm. like, it turned out that um, it ended in this way. And it was, you know, one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me was being married to Paul. And it just, um, it's wild to look back on that whole range of experiences through our marriage. You know, I can't even, I can't even describe how profound it is. And um, I go to a wedding now and it's like, I thought my wedding was romantic, you know, like the kiss is so romantic and mm. whatever. And now it's those, it's the vows and it's the sense of what's stretching before these two people, you know, it's yes. um, all of the challenges that come, like that's where the romance is, you know, is in that. Yes. In fact, uh, when my, I, I'm remarried, when my f- first wife was dying, I, I said to her therapist, actually, um, I, I'm not going to marry again unless it's someone I can die with. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, right. and she said, wow, that's a really high standard. And I said, well, that's the only standard. Why would I, you know, I why, would I not, why would I want to be with anyone that I didn't feel that we could see each other through that? So I, I think you're talking about a change in perspective, too, aren't you? That that, that is there if you really mean Till death do us part, the death is in there right from the start. Totally. And there's this thing, um, uh, I was reading this book about grief called um, Lament for a Son, and Nick Wolterstorff who writes it says, um, grief is the flip side of love. And it's sort of that idea that like the more pain you can experience um, around loss or around the suffering somebody's going through, it's actually a flip side of um, you know, this amazing love. It's actually been a very, that duality has been a very comforting thing for me um, to help sort of make sense of suffering and pain. Well, absolutely, because if we, if we didn't love, would it hurt? Right, exactly. <laughs> okay. So that, that resonates with me too. I, I'm also, I read your New York Times article, which is uh, in line with this because the title is My Marriage Didn't End When I Became a Widow. And I think that's um, a misunderstanding. You know, people sort of treat a widow as if they've been divorced, uh, which mm. having ended relationships, there's no similarity for in my in my heart and mind um, because you're still so connected to that person. And obviously, you are. You're kind of living with him every day, all the time. Yes. Yes. Totally. Totally. And I. Um I love the way you're saying that. I think, you know, now it's been 15 months since Paul died. And I, and because of his writing, everybody I meet wants to talk about Paul. Or even I'm, I get to talk with you today about Paul. And it's actually totally great for me. You know, it's, I still want to be saying his name. And I still feel as if we're a team, you know, we're um, especially around the experience of um, talking about his book. And meanwhile, you know, I hope I get remarried someday like you did. And at the same time, if I do... I know I'll love Paul. You know, it's like, yes. um, just as our daughter doesn't replace Paul, I wouldn't expect somebody else to replace Paul. It's like the, you know, that, that love, you know, I just, I think, I imagine that other people who are grieving um, know exactly what that's about. And it's a little, uh, it's a, you might not expect it until it happens to you. And then you realize, oh yeah, of course that's how this is, you know? Yes. Although I think there's a, a lot of, um, there's a strong idea about closure out in the culture. Right. And, uh-huh. and uh, since we're also here to talk about um, changing end of life, and some of that is about um, how we remember people after, after yes. life, I think that can be a really destructive concept. Uh, I've, I've encountered so many people trying to have closure, which seems to be put out as kind of ending something. Uh what do you think about that? Yeah, that concept doesn't make sense to me either. I think, um, you know, there are, obviously are things that change. Uh, the pain of losing somebody becomes less searing. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I don't think you close the book on, um, you know, I don't think you close the book on even having a, um, like a sense of connection to that person. You know, that's not something I think uh, we, should be, we should be expected to put aside. I think that's not really how it works. Yeah. Well, and in, in line with the with the conversation we're here in part to have today, this challenge that you're a part of and the work you're doing to, you got the book 
birthed and you know you're doing so much in your world that has to do with that relationship and me too look at what I do for a living um, it's it's actively in, evolving for both of us how that experience then shows itself yes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so, right. so when it we stretches get, into the future you know and then things yeah. evolve and yeah exactly well for me it's over 20 years and I can see how my relationship to her has continued to evolve and change much, much different than when she first died and certainly different than when she was alive, but she's still a big part of my life. Um, can I ask you, do I get to ask a question? Of course, <laughs> it's a conversation. <laughs> how has it evolved and changed? That's so interesting. Uh, well, for one thing, um, I was grateful right away. Um, but I'm, I'm more grateful is almost the entire experience now and and things that were horribly difficult at the time, like how long she was sick and how debilitated she was and how she was never in remission, all these things, um, trained me in a way and made me constantly deal with the issue of death. And that is, that's freed my life. Mm, totally. Wow, that's lovely. Um, and we can talk about that more when we come back. It's time for a break. came so fast. Uh, listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at Good Grief at, uh, at the Voice America station. You can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, etc., etc. Uh, you can go to my website, and uh, I have many of the books that uh, people have written on this show for sale there. To find Lucy Clark. Cl- Cal- Calanity, yes. Sorry. I know how it is, but I didn't it didn't come out. Uh, you can go to her Twitter at RocketGirlMD and to participate in the open IDEO challenge, go to IDEO.2 slash end of life. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Mm 
are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Dr. Lucy Kalanithi about her husband Paul's illness and death, about the book he wrote and she wrote, her her epilogue is beautiful, um, and uh, about the things it's led to. uh, We've been talking some about grief, Lucy, but also that that kind of drive to honor the person, uh, you know, there's something that feels so satisfying to me in uh, in doing this show because it's it's such a direct outgrowth of something that uh, my wife and I worked so hard to create um, and to and to face. And I get that sense of you and Paul too that you really made a choice to face up to what was happening extremely directly. That's right. That's right. And that was part of what it meant to him to write. When Breath Becomes Air. And then for me, going through grief, what you just said totally resonates with me. Um, my experience of uh, after Paul died, um, the, he left behind the manuscript and he'd secured a book deal. But then all of the process of um, editing the book and choosing the cover and then releasing it and promoting it, I've been doing that. And it's, I don't know how an introvert would do a book tour, but for me, it's like the best experience ever is that mm-hmm. I continue to get to connect to people and talk to Paul. And even if I hated it, I would be doing it to keep a promise. But instead, it's been such a positive experience for me, you know, to um, to keep, you know, feeling like I'm doing something for him or we're a team or at the least that I get to keep talking about him at a time when it's that's a helpful thing for me. Well, also... Um you know, we were talking a little before the break about evolution over time. Mm-hmm. Um, you're very much uh, a co-collaborator in that book, I feel. Uh, not just because you wrote the epilogue, but but because maybe because of my own experiences, I was so connected to where you were in it, uh, you know, when he, w- when he would be talking about you. But what's happened since his death puts you even more in it from my view um it is now you carrying you and he forward in some way do you experience it that way um yeah I guess so for me it feels it doesn't it feels more seamless because my personal I'm sort of like in my own personal experience so Mm -hmm. at the time that Paul was alive and he wrote an essay in, in the New York times called how long have I got left? And he wrote another one called before I go, um, that was widely read. He was like outwardly facing publicly and writing. Um, and, but then what we were doing around, you know, in our personal lives and especially around writing his manuscript, it was, it wasn't, his writing wasn't this little thing on the side. It was like the, the key portion of what he was trying to accomplish of course, um, while dying. And so we, we were really a team around that. And then, we've sort of remained a team and then, um, but going forward, I'm the public one. But again, it's like someone said recently, how does it feel to have people know all these intimate details about your life? And it's funny because, um, you know, even talking to you today, we're talking on the radio, but I kind of feel like I'm just talking to you. Mm -hmm. And I think it helps me to think about it that way, that it's a, like I'm making personal intimate connections around this personal intimate story 
um, and it's in a public way, but that sort of seems to be, it's not, um, I don't know. I don't know quite where I'm going with that, but it, it feels, it feels of a piece, you know, like a. Yes. Well, that, that really connects for me. That's how I feel every week on this particular, mm-hmm. <laughs> this particular hour that, um, I, I hope that it's helpful to others and I know that it's meaningful conversation with this one other person, you, mm-hmm. you today. Um, I'd like people to hear your voice in the book a little bit, if you wouldn't mind sharing uh, that, uh, the piece of your epilogue. Oh, right. Okay. Um, I just have to find it. Do you know? Do you know oh, what yeah. Start um, I could, I could read it for you too. It's um, the part that starts his, his cancer diagnosis was like oh, a nutcracker. Yes. yes. Okay. His cancer diagnosis was like a nutcracker, getting us back into the soft, nourishing meat of our marriage. We hung on to each other for his physical survival and our emotional survival, our love stripped bare. We each joked to close friends that the secret to saving a relationship is for one person to become terminally ill. Conversely, we knew that one trick to managing a terminal illness is to be deeply in love, to be vulnerable, kind, generous, grateful. A few months after his diagnosis, we sang the hymn, The Servant Song, while standing side by side in a church pew, and the words vibrated with meaning as we faced uncertainty and pain together. I will share your joy and sorrow till we've seen this journey through. Should I keep going a little bit? Um, I think so, right? Yes. yes, Another paragraph would be wonderful. (laughs) Great. When Paul told me immediately after his diagnosis to remarry after he died, it exemplified the way he would, throughout his illness, work hard to secure my future. He was fiercely committed to ensuring the best for me in our finances, my career, what motherhood would mean. At the same time, I worked hard to secure his present, to make his remaining time the best it could be, tracking and managing every symptom and aspect of his medical care, the most important doctoring role of my life, while supporting his ambitions, listening to his whispered fears as we embraced in the safety of our darkened bedroom, witnessing, acknowledging, accepting, comforting. We were as inseparable as we had been as medical students when we would hold hands during lectures. Now we held hands in his coat pocket during walks outside after chemotherapy, Paul in a winter coat and hat, even when the weather turned warm. He knew he would never be alone, never suffer unnecessarily. At home in bed a few weeks before he died, I asked him, can you breathe okay with my head on your chest like this? His answer was, it's the only way I know how to breathe. That Paul and I formed part of the deep meaning of each other's lives is one of the greatest blessings that has ever come to me. That's That feeling is so, so familiar to me, and I just really appreciate the way you've spoken it. Uh, Thank you. And, uh, you know, it leaves me pondering. So you have a very small child. She's, what, a year and a half? You're in two years. Yeah, she's about to be two. Yeah. About, to, about to be two. You're uh, a physician. You're doing a lot of work on the book. And in the midst of all that, um, you you were approached to work on this, um, how to make the end of life better. Uh, challenge at IDEO and you said yes obviously mm-hmm. <laughs> can you tell me um, what made that compelling for you 
to the point of adding another, obviously, uh, pr- another project, you know, um, to the many things you're doing? Sure. Um, uh, and I can, like, tell a little bit about the challenge and what's exciting about it. Absolutely. So, um, that's exactly right. I'm, um, I, so I'm really excited about the challenge. I'll, I'll just say, so IDEO, um, I already knew about um, from my work in, at Stanford working on improving healthcare delivery. And I knew that they were a design company and that they were sort of the pioneer of what's called human-centered design, which is a way of designing really with people in mind. Um, now it's called design thinking. And as an example, I knew that they had invented the first computer mouse for Apple and the stand-up toothpaste tube. It's like these interesting, <laughs> um, you know, sort of inventions or ideas that you're like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. And um, <laughs> Why so didn't just, anyone ever think really of this before? Really, like, reliably creative <laughs> company. So I admired them from afar. And then um, I learned about Open IDEO, which is this really generous thing they do that's a online, open uh, innovation platform where they um, bring together and invite literally the whole world to come on and communicate to solve pressing social or environmental issues. And so um, they've had more than 35 online challenges. They did one with Amnesty International um, uh, that was called the Human Rights Challenge. And they've um, done a number of different challenges, including about the environment. And then this one that they're putting forth right now is um, rethinking end of life. And so they're asking the question, how might we reimagine the end of life experience for ourselves and our loved ones? And it's getting at this idea that uh, dying is a chapter in our lives, not just a medical event. And mm. we really, you know, we're at this weird point in history where, um, you know, aging and illness and dying are totally ubiquitous, but then totally hidden and really sterilized. And I think there's a more ancient narrative and a more futuristic narrative that can serve us better. And so the idea of being um, connected and creative around how can we um, uh change or reclaim or reimagine the experience of dying is um, really compelling. And I think it's not just a, um, it's not just a place for the healthcare system and medical system to innovate and think about it, but really all of us are experts in this, um, you know, in being human and being mortal. And so um, IDEO, Open IDEO, to get back to that, has this um, online challenge and website, which is um, IDEO, I-D-E-O dot T-O slash end of life where anybody can go. And um, at this current phase of the challenge, it's um, sharing ideas uh, in a number of different opportunity areas about how we might improve. So it's kind of like a giant global brainstorm. And I think, um, and it's really easy to do online and, and I can give a sense of it too, but it's, I think about people who are grieving and how amazing it feels to be able to process that experience and connect with other people and then sort of give back what you've learned. And um, part of the reason I was drawn to the open IDEO challenge um, and helping support it is uh, as somebody who's grieving, it's a way to connect and give back, you know, sort of, um, and then anything that you can think of from your own experience that um, either you really loved or you wish had been different, there's a chance to help talk about dying in a real way. And then, reimagine how all these different aspects of it um, could be improved. And so I, Open IDEO um, platform facilitates that. And then um, we all get to participate and submit um, intuitions and ideas and then feedback ultimately. You know, that's powerful to me because um, 
you know, I, I have end of life guests, I have cancer guests, I have people grieving guests, and um, there's a way in which they're not intersected. Uh, that there isn't a, uh, you know, people don't know about each other, for one thing, and um, ideas don't have a central resting place. The two, two places came together with you and Paul, the medical community and the people with cancer community came together mm-hmm. in his experience. But that's actually not um, common you know, right. cancer cancer patients feel like doctors don't understand what they're going through. And, you know, right. so the idea that we can kind of brainstorm in one location all those aspects is very compelling to me. Totally, totally. Um, yeah, it's, it's really spectacular. It's really, um, it's getting at this idea that there's all these ways to approach this creatively. And, um, right, it doesn't have to be siloed. It doesn't have to be just people in medicine or just cancer patients or, you know, with the experience with Paul's book, I'm ending up in all these literary spheres where I'm going to literary festivals or ideas festivals and talking about this personal experience of facing dying and facing mortality. And, you know, I'm, I'm as much of an expert and as much of a novice as anybody else, um, you know, because uh, it's a really deeply human experience, you know, it doesn't belong to anybody. It's a, it's, it's all of ours. So that's like what this idea, the open IDEO challenge sort of, um, that's the, crux of it to me so in a way it does also what the book does it increases the conversation because I was thinking as I was reading okay there are people that are going to read this book because it's incredibly beautifully written uh, not because they're that comfortable thinking about mortality but then once you read the book you have touched mortality (laughs) and and there's something about that that's really um moving to me right and even it's funny because um uh it's true it kind of indicates a couple things i think the response to paul's book indicates a couple things which are you know we're hungry to actually engage with this idea and talk about it i think um you know even though it's hidden we want to bring it out of the shadows and um and be able to face it together and then i think there's also the fact that you know when when paul himself is thinking about dying and how do i spend my time before i die those are questions about dying, but really they're questions about living, right? There's, um, yes. uh, there's this amazing open IDEO on the website um, for the open IDEO challenge. They have this wonderful quote by Atul Gawande where he says, the ultimate goal is not a good death, but a good life to the very end. And I think that's another thing the challenge is getting at is really we're talking about living and how, um, you know, that can get stripped away from us as we approach dying. And um, the idea that that doesn't have to happen is really exciting and beautiful. And so, um, again, this challenge sort of lets us think about it that way. And let me ask you in terms of your own experience of Paul dying, did you did you feel, you know, I know that, that um, he was hospitalized at the end of his life. It sounded as if that was a very human uh, environment that you that you created, regardless of being in a hospital. But uh, how do you feel about? Are there things you wish had been different, or not? Or you know, do do you bring something personal in terms of what worked and what didn't from from that experience into uh, how you engage with this challenge? Sure, um, that's right. So Paul. Um, died at Stanford Hospital, and he 
we knew that he had only probably a few weeks left to live. He was really sick with advancing cancer and he had um, brain metastases uh, and we were sort of preparing to enter hospice at that time. And then he got really sick really fast and um, suddenly was really struggling to breathe. And so we ended up going to the hospital um, to see if it was something reversible and also to help him be more comfortable simultaneously. And then um, it became clear that going onto a ventilator, you know, was a potential option, but um, wasn't going to give him more meaningful time. And so he knew that um, he knew he chose not to do that. And so uh, it became clear that he was going to die in the hospital. And then uh, suddenly it, what we really wanted to think about was um, what's most important about this day and this experience for him. And, you know, I wasn't asking myself that question in a, you know, in a intellectual words in my mind. I yes. was just sort of following this like deep gut sense of like um, both of us thinking we need our daughter here. Of course, she was an infant um, and uh, she hadn't been in the hospital overnight with us. And then a family friend went to get her and brought her in. And it's unusual for an infant to be allowed into the intensive care unit. Um, but she was able to come right in. And then I climbed into the bed with Paul and she was in the bed with both of us. And the things that stick out to me about that day are the really personal, um, uh, like, uh, I don't even know the word, um, just sort of the, the really personal human elements of it. So one example is us all being in the bed. And then there's this other kind of surprising one that I, that just occurred to me more recently, which is, um, Paul had been a neurosurgeon at Stanford Hospital. So um, him dying in that hospital, it wasn't an unfamiliar, scary place to him. It was actually a place where the nurses taking care of him were nurses who knew him. And so Mm -hmm. even that experience or after Paul died, um, the people who took care of his body after he died were people who had been his colleagues and his loved ones at work. Um, And so even that idea is comforting for me. And Um, But that's not true for everybody who dies in a hospital, you know, so I think about things like that, the key moments that were so beautiful to me in contrast to the sterility or the, um, you know, the, the less human aspects of being in a hospital. And I think like those are the things that shine to me the brightest as um, the things that mattered. And um, uh, so, yeah, those are some examples. Well, that's that's really interesting because I'd never thought about the fact that had uh, my sweetie died at in a hospital, our daughter wouldn't have been able to be there. She was two and a half then, uh, and so that that all by itself is quite uh, that is so hard for me to picture <laughs> because why, why do you, because why the way that that she was in that. Uh, I think it would have been so much harder for her not to be a part of it. So that's that's one really, really um, startling kind of aspect of what you're saying. And you could make the hospital environment that way because it was basically your environment. Uh, right, and it was it, like, it was just necessary. I mean, I would have... I I would have like barricaded this something to get her in there. I think, but they were so kind. I mean, they they understood that need, right? It's a real need. Um, and um, you want me to tell you about pieces of the um, opportunity areas for open IDEO because some of this I'm, I'm actually that. gonna I'm gonna go into. I know that you have to leave a little early, and I am gonna go into that in in quite a bit of detail in the last segment. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, that's that's. I was just going to announce that when we said goodbye, but um, yeah, 
I I wanted to hear kind of how you came to it and what was important to you, which I feel I've gotten a sense of. And then uh, in the final section, I'm going to share some specifics with people about kind of the aspects, which I find fascinating uh, what they, uh, how things group together. Uh, because when I read the list, um, you know, that. Yes, connectedness, new values, what surrounds us, planning now, services and care and the cost of dying and after death. That kind of covers it, doesn't it? <laughs> if, if, we, if, if, we, um, if this challenge results in really powerful ideas in those areas, end of life experience will be changed. Oh, sure. And it's really fun and interesting to go on and look at um, ideas that have already been put out there because you get to see other people's um, ideas and it actually kind of works as this like online community brainstorm you know like what if we had an outdoor hospice what if we had doulas at the end of life the way we can for giving birth you know like it's really interesting and then you think you start looking at them and you think oh yeah I have an idea in this one or this made me think of this other thing. It's it's kind of really interesting and amazing. Yeah. Well, it's fantastic. I mean, that's that's how uh, ideas most happily generate, don't they? Totally. We kind of pop each other off. I've had many ideas today talking to you that are a little fresh, even though I think of these subjects all the time, mm, and I well, and I love that experience. So I hope too. people really will will go. <laughs> You know, engage, which is part of, uh, of course, today has been about us talking uh, about you and Paul and your experience, but also about inviting people who also are having, but very unpublicly, these deep, profound experiences, and they have meaningful ideas about how we might do it differently and better. Totally, like real wisdom. Real yeah. wisdom, exactly. Oh, I, I really regret having to say goodbye to you. Me I too. <laughs> I know you're about to get on a plane. I really hope we cross paths again. It's been a delight. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank you. Um, you can find Lucy at uh, uh, on Twitter at RocketGirlMD. And you can find the IDEO challenge at IDEO.2 slash end of life and I'll be back to talk more about the challenge in in a lot of detail in the final segment so please stay with me and I'll be right back your life your health your network you're listening to voice America health and wellness Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. Mm-hmm. 
listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Lucy Klonathy for the first two segments of the show, which was such a, a deep honor and pleasure to me. Um, the work she's doing both to further her husband Paul's work, uh, most directly through um, advancing his book, When Breath Becomes Air, and in uh, getting the word out about how end of life might be different, very meaningful to me and very in line with this program, of course. Um, I, I think the important thing to me is how, and I've learned this every week doing this show, how um, our experiences of loss lead to such a compelling desire to give back. Pretty much every guest I've had is is has uh, been driven by a passion to contribute to uh, getting words out about what they've they've experienced and helping other people with it. And Open Ideo is is a great example of that. In fact, the person that of the company Ideo uh, began to think about this because of a death in his his own life of his parent. So. Uh, I, I think that's that's really remarkable that we can take our most profound loss experiences and make something incredible out of it. I want to tell people uh, a lot more specifically about IDEO and about this challenge. Uh, as Lucy said, IDEO is, is a global design company. They've designed a lot of practical items and things that you know about in your life, but they also have a, a wing that is more uh, philanthropy or social uh, social help-based, open IDEO. It's called the Open Innovation Arm of IDEO. It's been around for about five years. It has a prototype on Facebook, and it has a, a global community of over 100,000 people. They've, they've conducted more, to, more than 35 online challenges, and they apply their design ideas, their thinking methodology to pressing social and environmental issues, um, this being one of them. This is one of their recent, most recent challenges, how might we reimagine the end-of-life experience for ourselves and our loves, loved ones, everyone around the world is invited to participate. I was uh, leading a cancer support group last night and brought it up with everyone there because many people in the in the group are thinking about mortality issues, how they would want the end of their lives to be because like Paul, they're in the stage of life where that is nearer. Um, so I think it's, it's just the idea that every single person has access and that every single idea is considered uh, and that there's a sort of, uh, it reminds me of my friend who is Quaker, uh, where there's a sort of meeting and 
uh, a development of group sense. We're developing group sense about the end of life. I just think that's phenomenal. The entire challenge is to last three months. The first months happened, and that was called the inspiration phase. People sh- shared their stories or interviews with people that worked in end of life or experiences they'd had with end of life. Uh, that ended up in- involving uh, some ideas uh, in the sense that our experiences contain ideas about what works and what doesn't. There were over 350 inspiration points, po- posts on the website. You can go and read them all at the, at the website that I mentioned, and I will mention again at the end of this hour. And um, out of that, they moved to create some blocks of uh, sub-questions that would create new solutions to reimagining the end of life. Um, they're, they're starting a little fresh. Some of these things um, many of us have been thinking about for a long time, and, um, and yet it's so useful to have a central place where these ideas are being collected. Um, this ideas phase that we're in now will end on June 27th. Uh, so in between now and June 27th, you can go to the website and add your own ideas, either well-developed or just, you know, what about this? Uh, this is what didn't work, whatever it is, um, to try and collect ideas and hopefully from all over the world so let people know that you know from elsewhere. Uh, and then in the month of July... Uh, we'll move into what they're calling the refinement phase in which those ideas get distilled to uh, a list of a short list of ideas to continue to develop. That'll be the top ideas, the one that ones that come up a lot uh, and the ones that really stick will be announced at the beginning of August. And then um, they will begin to think about how to, how to bring those ideas forward. Um, They want to have an an impact at the system level. They want to get stakeholders to think and collaborate in new ways. And they also want it to be very personal and individual and create a safe place for discussing a topic that a lot of people ignore. And yet many of us don't ignore and have very profound ideas about. I know some of you are those people. So please, please engage with it. I want to say what the uh, what the subcategories are. Uh, connectedness. Connectedness to friends, family, nature, and beyond is a critical part of living. What might connectedness mean in our final moments? As Lucy and I were just talking about, um, being with someone when they die can be extremely connecting. Her and I have both had that experience. And how can uh, what surrounds us at those times uh, really support and invite that Um what connections might be we let go of on the other, other hand uh, that whole issue of how we leave this earth connected to others and to uh, living new values rituals customs and cultural values ground us in life they're typically passed down from generation to generation I had a guest not long ago who was talking about uh, uh, how she cultivates meaning between someone who's dying and their family about what's important to them and how they would like those values to express themselves in uh, their 
partner, children, grandchildren, what it is they have to offer in terms of the next generation. Um, What surrounds us, whether death happens at home or more commonly hospitals and institutions, the impact of physical and sensory experiences, planning now, fear or despair felt at the end of life is heightened by the fear that our death might burden people. So how do we plan so that there's less of a burden and we can be more present to the experience uh, and maybe even bring some humor and lightness to it? Services and care, this is so huge. Um, How does the medical, social, and cultural ecosystem support us or not support us, and what would it take to support us better? Uh, The cost of dying, which is not a joke. 25% of seniors lose all their assets in the last five years of life, 41% if you take out housing. Um, And caregivers learn a tremendous amount in wages. And finally, after death, after we die, how are we going to impact people's lives? How will we keep uh, that, that relationship? Just as Lucy and I were talking about taking our relationships with these people we loved who died forward, how do we make a platform for that overall in the world? So that gives you an idea of this challenge. Uh, I really, really hope you'll go and engage with it. Um, I, I, ha- I want to thank Lucy uh, Kalanithi again and her wonderful book, her husband's book, but hers too, When Breath Becomes Air. Please go read it. It's incredible. Next week, I'll welcome Hattie Bryant, author of I'll Have It My Way, Taking Control of End-of-Life Decisions, a book about freedom and peace. And uh, we'll be discussing how she came to write that book and what what uh, it contains. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. 